This morning, though, we're um, finishing a two-part series on St. Augustine, and what we've kind of gotten in the habit of doing every year, the first two weeks of January, is doing what we call sermon biography series. Just history has things to teach us, people's lives have thing to te- things to teach us, um, and it's just kind of fun that way. And so last week, we kind of talked about the life and times of St. Augustine and, and just uh, different things that we could learn from that, and we talked about his book, um, City of God and City of Man, and, and today we're going to just dive a little bit more into the actual person and what we can maybe learn from him. And I, I wrote out, just to make it quicker and easier, I wrote out a paragraph, it's inside your notes page, and we're going to show it on the screen, but just to try and frame some of the events of his life so we can get into drawing some uh, lessons and application, um, I just kind of wrote it out, it just would go quicker that way. So um, let's just kind of go ahead and read through this. And again, you can read in your notes page there or on the screen. But uh, Augustine was a North African born in Thasgate, um, Thagast, I'm sorry, in what is now modern uh, Algeria. He was born on November 13, 354. This is about 20 years after, after the death of Constantine. Um, so you kind of get a little bit of the sequence. Constantine was the one that, that legislated for religious tolerance, and he was a Christian emperor, started building a lot of um, uh, the, the churches that we would still have today. Like if you go to Jerusalem, a lot of those churches that are on so-called holy sites were uh, Helena, um, Constantine's mom, actually kind of went out there and found those places and, and had and arranged for these, these churches to be built. So you kind of get the, the sequence. And then Augusta, or, um, Constantine dies, and about 20 years later, is when Augustine is born. So it's just a different kind of a Roman Empire. Uh, he was the greatest of the Latin fathers of the church, and he was born into a middle-class family. His father was a pagan, and he died uh, when he was probably in his teens. He was kind of an abusive father, but he was brought up by his devout Christian mother, Monica. Monica becomes, in the history of literature, the archetype of um, a nagging mom, which, because of Augustine's confessions, you kind of see this pattern of her nagging and wanting to see him um, get saved and, and things like that, come to the Lord. She was a devout Christian mother. Um, a couple things about her that are interesting, actually. She becomes a saint through the Catholic Church later on. And so Santa Monica, California is actually named after Saint Monica, Santa Monica, California. And if you're into this kind of thing, I think it's just interesting, but if you're into it, um, if in the Catholic tradition, she's the patron saint of bad marriages. So maybe... Maybe you need to write that one down. Um, All right, so continuing on. uh, Augustine went to Carthage to study and then had a son. He had a mistress, uh, had a son there. His son was to die kind of at a younger age. In 383, he moved to teach at Rome. He left his mom at the docks. It's a really funny story. The doting, nagging mom was going to try and go with, and he he pulled a fast one on her and got on the boat before she knew what was happening and kind of sailed off. It's not like she can catch the next flight. I mean, so it was a pretty big slam right there. Um, So uh, left her at the docks. Then he goes to Milan. He was uh, taught in rhetoric, which would have been in those days uh, a combination of philosophy, marketing, um, speech communications, kind of like all wrapped into one. Would have been a big major back in those days, writing. Um, So he was kind of a, a big guy in rhetoric. So he goes to Rome, then on to Milan, and then he became influenced by skepticism and then by Neoplatonism. Uh, I've got a little map just so you can kind of see where he's at. Um, Thagast is in here, right in this area. 
You would have gone to Carthage to go um, up to Italy to Rome. Milan's all the way up here. And so his journey kind of takes him from here to Carthage up, and then we'll see he eventually comes back and then settles on a, a town of Hippo, which is kind of right on the Mediterranean here. And this is now modern-day Algeria, but it would have been the North African province of the Roman Empire kind of at that period of time. So he goes on um, and uh, studies and teaches and gets influenced by a bunch of different ideas. Manichae, uh, he became a Manichaean, which is kind of like a, a mix or a blend of Buddhism and Persian thought with Christianity. It was kind of a big thing in kind of his day, and it would have been the trendy thing. So whatever would be kind of the trendy thing, maybe being like into Zen Buddhism in America right now or something like that, um, since Jack Kuryak and On the Road and all those kinds of things, maybe that's kind of what Manichaeanism would have been in Augustine's day. And then he began, because he was an intellectual, as he began to kind of push on things, he found out that there really wasn't any kind of truth undergirding it. And then he was kind of done with it. And that, that was part of what led to his conversion to Christianity. Uh, Augustine returned to North Africa, planning to live a quiet monastic life near his native Thagast. But the people persisted in electing him first a priest, and then in 395, a bishop at the town of Hippo. For the next 38 years, Augustine ministered faithfully among the people of Hippo, and he lived a monastic life, sharing an apostolic community of goods with his fellow ministers at Hippo. Now, this is really interesting because he, he lived kind of as a monk, and so he would have been wearing kind of just a gray, kind of drab garb. And there's even, in one of his letters, he talks about um, how if I was given a, a nice new tunic, I wouldn't even know what to do with it. I would feel really uncomfortable wearing it. I mean, he just you know, drab, kind of the same thing, nothing fancy. What's interesting about it, though, is the Renaissance was kind of the time in the Christian church when uh, a lot of the painters and the artists, the Catholic church was a, a patron of the arts. And so you see this flourishing of artwork around scripture or church history. And so most of the, the paintings we would have of St. Augustine are from that time period, and you'll see kind of how they portray him. So that would be him in the middle. And this painting is the life stages or or scenes kind of from the life of St. Augustine, and then another one um, below it. And you just, you see him portrayed in the fashion of that day in some sense. And, and the church in that day, the, the cardinals and the bishops and everyone would, would wear garb just like the military would wear kind of uniforms and things like that. And the purpose, the stated purpose, was to set them apart from your, the regular people. So the reason the military would, would wear uniforms is to set them apart from the average person, right? And the church in those days would adorn kind of the, the hierarchy for the same reasons, to kind of set them apart because they were higher up. They were priests, and they were intermediaries between people and God, okay? Totally different view than what Augustine would have had, where he would have seen himself more as a slave or a servant to the people, um, not in this kind of um, pomp, and, and stuff like that. So it's really interesting as you see pictures or paintings, it reflects just where the church was at on the eve of the Reformation, not really where it was at with Augustine and kind of his, um, his stance towards things. He lived as a monk. Often uh, he preached five days in a row, sometimes twice a day. He, re he wrote over a thousand treatises on almost every subject, touching on all the important principles of Christianity. Christians from all over the empire wrote him for counsel and advice and many of his letters have survived. The Confessions is a classic of world literature and a spiritual autobiography, as well as an original work of philosophy. The City of God, which we talked about last week, 
uh, where Augustine expounds on, on Christ's idea of being in the world but not of the world. Okay? Um, the City of God is a work of 22 books presenting human history in terms of the conflict between the spiritual and the temporal, or as, as he put it, the City of God and the City of Man. Augustine died in 430 while um, the town of Hippo was being besieged by the Vandals. And the interesting thing is the next year is the, the second great council of the church, the Council of Ephesus. And at the Council of Ephesus is where Pelagius, uh, the founder of Pelagianism, was deemed kind of heresy and a heretic. So this was kind of the arch enemy, if you kind of put it in this way, not like that he was a bad person, but that his ideas were what Augustine fought for the latter part of his life. And then a year after he dies, kind of the council comes along and says, um, this is heresy and rules it out. What, what Pelagius believed, he was from Britain on the, the far kind of west of the Roman Empire and then came in through Rome and stuff like that. And he brought with him a real philosophically driven view that people were inherently good, that we were good people, and therefore we can find our way to God. We've got it within ourselves because we're good to solve whatever problems there are and find our way to God. And Augustine, who really framed a lot of the, the doctrine of original sin, it, it kind of began there. Remember that the church had been in persecution so long from the time of the apostles to around Augustine's day that you really see the formulation of doctrine in Augustine's time. But the, the doctrine of original sin, that, that we are born with sin, we're not 100% um, good, that there's this element to us that, that's just there. Uh, that was kind of Augustine's view, and therefore we need a Savior, and we need God to reach towards us. We can't do it completely on our own, right? So these are kind of the two ideas that battled against each other uh, with Pelagius. Now, I, I thought about talking extensively about that <laughs> um, because it flows into a lot of other things and flows into what's called Calvinism and Armenianism and and it would take kind of the whole of today to talk about it and it would get into a raging debate um, and then I decided I, that's not what I was going to do <laughs> that's why we have Kilns College so you can sign up for a class and over the course of like 13 weeks you can just dive into theological issues and if you don't like what your teacher teaches you can get mad at him not me which, is, which would be cool. Uh, side note, St. Augustine uh, is a town in Florida also, and it is the oldest continuously inhabited European city in America, North America. So it's the oldest city in America is St. Augustine, Florida, and the port there is the oldest bar none port uh, in North America, which is kind of just side note if you're looking for vacation. Um, <laughs> Norman Cantor, who's kind of the, the foremost scholar on the Middle Ages, says this, of all the, the fathers of the church, St. Augustine was the most admired and the most influential during the Middle Ages. He was a genius and an intellectual giant. B.B. Warfield, the, the theologian, said that he entered both the church and the world as a revolutionary force and not merely created an epoch in the history of the church, but determined the course of its history in the West up until the present day. Christian History Magazine says... After Jesus and Paul, uh, Augustine of Hippo is the most influential figure in the history of Christianity. It's interesting because both Catholics and Protestants claim him kind of as their own. He did a lot to talk to the hierarchy and the formalization of the Roman Catholic Church, kind of the institutional side of it. But he also talked so much about what's called the doctrines of grace that when Calvin was writing during the Reformation, John Calvin, 
he said, if, the, if Rome is kind of against what I'm writing, he goes, Augustine is so favorable to our position that I could state everything just with quotes from St. Augustine. Um, and he was basically saying, we're not deviating from doctrine. Look at how continuous it is with one of these great Latin fathers of the church. Uh, in fact, John Calvin quoted or cited St. Augustine more than any other uh, author in all of his writings. So you see kind of this interesting thing that he's a, a father to both the Protestant tradition as well as the Catholic tradition. And so we're going to kind of just look at him, though, a little bit more from the standpoint of his life. Now, it doesn't mean that he's a perfect guy. Uh, there's things I disagree with him on um, that a lot of people disagree with him on these days. And uh, the sacraments is one of them. I disagree with some of the things to do with the Pope and, and kind of the succession that way. Uh, disagree with him on his view of sex because um, he kind of took the view of his day that it was kind of evil and kind of tainted with evil. And it's actually why the Catholic Church for most of its history, even up till recent, kind of had this stereotype or this view that, that sex, even in marriage, kind of just had this nastiness to it. It was evil. Um, and, and I don't agree with that view. There's just a lot of things we don't agree with St. Augustine on, but there's a lot of things that I do agree with him on. And I think his life or his example um, is a pretty amazing one for us even today. A couple quick things, and then we'll get into the three main points I want to make. Uh, he has an example for us in terms of Scripture. His conversion story that we're going to read when we close um, out of the Confessions talks about how he heard someone singing the song, Take and Read, and he took up the Scriptures and he read, and that was kind of where his conversion experience came from. He was so well-versed in the Scriptures that when you read Augustine, every single paragraph has an allusion to Scripture. It's absolutely unbelievable. And with um, people this big in the history of literature, they go and they kind of cite like how all the little things that have reference back to, to stuff. So you can actually open up books and see just all the little footnotes just from one little page of biblical allusions that he's making. He's just so steeped in Scripture. His battle with Pelagius really set the tone um, for a lot of things, and I think we can kind of learn from that, that, that when there's a disagreement in terms of theology, that it is Scripture first and then right reason secondly that determine these things. It's not what we want to believe. It's not what sounds persuasive. It's what does Scripture teach. And as we build our arguments, logic wins. It's not our own feelings or what's politically correct. And so when you see Luther, who was an Augustinian monk uh, in the 1500s, 1521 at the Diet of Worms, stand up to the Catholic Church, and he refuses to recant his writings, he utters the famous words, "...unless I am shown by Scripture or by right reason..." I cannot can't, uh, recant, I will not recant, uh, to go against conscience is ni neither wise nor prudent. Okay? Uh, so you see this kind of tradition of we don't get to make up theology. We don't, we don't get to just pick and choose. Today, as I, in America, it's a real interesting thing theologically. It's, it's a real grab bag, and there's all these movements and fads and, and kind of different things going on, and, and I kind of blame American pragmatism because if you look at the history of it, the 80s and 90s were such a, an interesting time in the church's life where it was about um, a new model of doing ministry, seeker-sensitive, which was saying, let's connect with people in a way that actually works. And that makes sense, right? There's nothing inherently wrong with that. But it's, you know, the grandmother's church or this church was really stale and rigid and it wasn't connecting with people. So we need to create these churches that work, but then it works and, and the, they grow really large, these mega churches, that we get so 
focused on being successful in a pragmatic way with ministry that lead pastors of rather big and large churches, good men, godly men, began to think, why are people spending three years in seminary being trained when they should come to our churches, our big mega churches, and we'll show them how to do ministry? So the idea was basically go to Bible college, get all you can, and then forget all you got because that's irrelevant to, to actual ministry. Okay, And so there was this attitude. When I was in seminary, I heard it almost on a monthly basis. Uh, I mean, it was just out there that it's a lot more effective for the young pastors to come through the megachurch and be taught how to do ministry than to go to the old, kind of old-fashioned route and be trained and educated in terms of um, book knowledge or the intellect. Okay, What did that create? What it created in this decade was a lot of guys without the benefit of understanding history or theology or the history of theology that are focused really on results, okay, that begin to get caught up in fads or movements because they don't understand what's undergirding or the philosophy undergirding those fads or movements. Okay, so there's things happening today that happened back in the 1920s. Um, there are things going on that, that my generation of pastors and good, godly guys are running headlong into because they think it's new and they think they, they see that it works, but they don't realize it's something that happened in the history of the church, even in America, just 100 years ago. And that you can look and see how there's philosophical underpinnings of um, kind of relegating Scripture to a side note um, and kind of uh, overemphasizing things that would be in conflict with theological doctrines and stuff like that and they don't understand these issues. Um, it's just kind of a, a funky thing that way, and St. Augustine was dealing with that in his day, with Pelagius and with other things, and it was scripture first. There's a scripture quote in every paragraph. The whole idea of canon, you guys uh, know the, the word canon simply means rule or standard. So there's like, my, I remember like when I was in elementary school, they told me that somewhere in Washington, D.C., I've never seen it, but supposedly somewhere in Washington, D.C., there's like a ruler, and that's a foot, and it's like, you know, temperature controlled, and that's what a foot actually is. So if you take your plastic ruler and say, this is a foot, well, only if it compares with that one in Washington, D.C., that's like the, the rule or the standard for saying what a foot is. Does that make sense? Okay. When we say that Scripture is the canon for the church, it's the rule or the standard by which everything else is judged by. So if we, we have an idea about theology or doctrine or the relationship with God or about God, we have to take that and then compare it against the canon. And if it matches, then we know we're on to, um, to doctrine and theology and sound teaching what we would call orthodoxy, right belief, okay, is orthodoxy. And so it's the canon that way. And, and Augustine gives us a great example of Scripture, gives us a great example of reason even. He talks a lot about how reason and faith play together. The comment faith-seeking understanding had come from the, the philosophers of Greece and all that, but, but Augustine brought it into the church and basically said there's something here. We start with faith, and then we look to understand. Uh, coming from Augustine also was the, the view that, and a lot of philosophers hate this, that philosophy was the handmaiden of theology. The theology in our view of God was the most important thing and that we would use philosophy to help... Um, understand and evaluate doctrine so that it was consistent and not um, illogical. And philosophers hate that because they feel like it was the dark era of philosophy where it was in some sense controlled by the church. 
and we won't get into that one either. Um, but here's what I want to talk about. Three things in Augustine that I think are huge for us today that we need to kind of evaluate. The first one is this, the doctrine of happiness. Doctrine of happiness. Um, just some quotes that, that we'll put on the board just to kind of frame it out, but here are some things that Augustine said, and it's all over St. Augustine, it's all over Pascal, Aquinas, um, almost every one of the great theologians of the church, it talks about happiness in this kind of a way. Uh, Augustine says this, so true is it that our spirit feeds on what gives it joy. And it was, he's basically talking about in the confessions here that God designed us to seek our happiness, to seek our joy, and that joy is found in God, so it's actually the thing God created us so that we would seek and pursue Him. Does that make sense? Second thing is this, our aim must always be to reach that state of happiness in which no trouble shall distress us and no error mislead us. He's saying we should actually grow in our ability to be truly happy. Lastly, indeed, we all desire the happy life. And everyone would agree with this, almost before the words are out of my mouth. And I remember when I was first a college pastor, I said something about happiness and how it's really cool that like, um, our relationship with God and our pursuit of happiness kind of like come together. And I had this college kid at Biola come up afterwards and, and just point his finger at me and he says, you're not actually implying that like, we should be pursuing our own happiness. And I was so shocked and scared that I started stammering and started, oh no, like, absolutely not, I'm not implying that. And I kind of backtracked and ran, and then for like a year I didn't talk about happiness anymore. I was like scared. I'm like, I'm going to be just crucified if I talk about happiness, and I just confused. Um, and the funny thing is, is that is the, the culture in American Christianity that we've kind of grown up in, where the word happiness is, is part of enemy territory. We can't talk about happiness in our our Christian walk in the same breath. It's not a part of discipleship. It's not a part of godliness. Our godliness is us fulfilling our duty to be obedient, not to pursue happiness, which is radically opposed to it. And so what happens is um, people look at the Christians that are here, and, and you know the number one reason people don't take Christianity is, is the examples of Christians, right? I mean, you've heard it from your friends and family. Yeah, there's just hypocrisy or whatever, or... Um, whatever example. So they look at Christians, they're like, man, there's just no life there. And they, so they go this way. And the people over here are just doing duty. And it's interesting, when I, when I was in college at Clemson, the first time I read through John, and was really reading through the, the Gospel of John, I got to this in John 15, verses 9 through 11. Just listen to this for a second. It says this, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. And if you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in His love. Now here's the kicker. I have told you this. The reason I'm telling you this, abide with me, obey my commands, okay? The reason I have told you this is so that my joy may be in you and so that your joy may be complete. Your joy, the, the light bulb inside you that just shines and allows you to be content and to be happy in that kind of blessed way, right? Okay? That light comes from Christ. He's the one that turns that up. And Jesus knows that and he says, I want what's best for you. And the only way you're going to get that is through me. And the only way you're going to be with me is if you obey my commands. Okay? So obey my commands. Now, I had grown up around Christianity, and, and I had a different formula in my mind of obedience. 
Okay? My formula for obedience was obey the commands or else. And I don't care if you're miserable. I don't care if it sucks. You obey the commands. Don't let me catch you not obeying the commands. All that matters is that you obey the commands. Right? Are you obeying the commands? Show me. Let me look at your life. Let me dissect and pick you apart. And I'll find one instance where you're not obeying the commands, and then I'll come down so hard on you. Because it, it just matters that you're living a Christian life, which means obeying the commands. And there was no sense of, of this wholeness of relationship with Christ. And there was no sense that, that everything that was deep inside me, this longing for like life to the full, was a part of this whole idea of obeying commands. So Jesus goes on in John 10 to say, the thief comes only to kill and destroy, to make you miserable, to take away life, to take away that, that light, right? He says, but I have come to give you life and life to the full. So it's an interesting thing that we've somehow ruled out in Christianity in America um, that's there and it's there in Augustine. Augustine talked about the Beatitudes in a way that for the next several centuries became the way of reading the Beatitudes because it was just perfectly clear in that day and age that what happiness was something you talked about. And the word here in, in the Beatitudes when Jesus says blessed are is a Greek word makarios which means happy, blessed, happy. Not, I'm not just making up the happy part. Okay, it means happy. So in the Latin translation um, it's beati, B-E-A-T-I. It's where we get beatitudes, beatitudes, okay? Beati begins each one of those phrases, and it's the Latin word for what? Happy. And so what happens is happy, blessed kind of mean the same thing in most of church history until the modern era. Well, we had the King James Bible um, pretty much until the modern era, the 1900s. And the King James Bible says blessed, which means happy, fulfilled, satisfied, rejoicing, and joyful, okay? And then all of a sudden we start writing the more contemporary translations of the Bible, and blessed doesn't really mean anything to us, and, but there's this real tension. If, if the new translators put in the word happy, where it's supposed to be beati, beatitudes, blessed, everyone's going to be in an uproar, and they're going to feel like it's not a real translation. So you have this real interesting dilemma, and it's one of those choices that translators make, and they actually keep the word blessed. And, and what's the end result of that for us? The end result of that is we read the Beatitudes in a ritual kind of way. You know, incense going, um, wonderful vibe, blessed are the poor in spirit. Right? I mean, we do. It's like the Psalms. It's like this ritualistic thing. It, it, it's wonderful when we hear it. It's pleasant to our ears. And it becomes this religious thing that makes us feel good. Well, yoga can make us feel good. Coffee in Starbucks can make us feel good. There's a lot of things in life that we can experience and feel good. And we're treating the Beatitudes that way when the reality was Jesus is on this hill talking to a bunch of marginalized people that are desperate, that are hurting, that are oppressed, that are being victimized, and they are hopeless. I mean, the people we saw on the screen, the hopelessness. And they come to Christ, and they're hopeless. And Jesus says to them, you don't understand. Blessed, happy, 
joyful, fulfilled, content are you because you are down at the bottom and I've come for those like you. This equation is now finally like complete. The two halves are making a whole. I have come for you, not for the people in power who are oppressing you. And so you're hopeless, yet your hope has arrived. And you need to realize that, that you're happy now. Because even though you're here, this is what's going to come of it. Blessed are the peacemakers, you who always lose. For you will see God. And he just goes on and on. And it's this happy thing. And where is that gone in our, our faith? Where is that gone in the church? The word beatitude is where the, the doctrine for most of the Christian church of the beatific vision comes from. The beatific vision and that, that, that beatitude is, is where one of three verses that this doctrine comes from. That when we get to heaven, we will behold God and see God. Right? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will see God. Happy are they, beati. So the beatific vision is when we are in the presence of God, beholding His beauty, and there's nowhere that's happier. It's this eternal kind of um, making it all come together and make sense, and deep-seated joy. So when we sing that song, um, Beautiful One, we're singing about the beatific vision beautiful one, I adore thee, beautiful one, I love thee, and then there's this great part at the end, I can't remember, like, what was the, like a couple little words and then another word, remember the little thing at the end, <laughs> somebody shout it out, because it made sense, my soul, my soul must sing, the beatific vision where in the presence of God, my soul, my soul must sing because I'm happy and fulfilled. And if we rule out happiness and we don't get it, then when we show up on Sunday morning as a community to worship, guess what we're going to get? We're going to get lackluster, vanilla worship. Because we're not really seeing the beatific vision or getting a glimpse of that. And we're not really understanding that that's the thing, the only thing that's going to really satisfy what God puts so deep down in us, that hunger, that desire. If we understand that that is, is with God where the greatest of all things happen and our happiness is going to be found there. Jesus says, abide with me, be with me so that you may have full joy, right? When we understand that, we come in on Sunday morning and worship is something radically different. My soul, my soul must sing. Because I'm in the presence of God and there's joy there, right? So that flows into the next thing here. Um, by the way, John Piper, one of my favorite modern-day theologians, wrote a book called Desiring God where he talks about a lot of these ideas. He coined a phrase called Christian hedonism. Hedonism is radically pursuing pleasure. Christian hedonism is radically pursuing your pleasure in God. Doesn't that make sense? I mean, isn't that what God would smile on? Radically pursuing your fullness and your pleasure in Him, through Him. And those two things match God's glory and our happiness that way. Um, anyways, Piper's got a book, Desiring God. I'd love to get it into your hands if you want to read more about that. Second thing is love. Now notice how we flow out of the happiness thing and into love. And I've got a quote from Bonnie Kent, who's an uh, Augustinian scholar, and listen to what she says. And I love how she kind of puts how Augustine blends these two things, but um, it's just a quote. There you go. All right. 
Uh, Augustine himself sees no serious conflict between declaring happiness our supreme good and declaring God our supreme good. For love itself works to overcome the distinction. Does that make any sense? When my happiness and another object unify, they become the same thing. When I'm with my daughter or one of my daughters holding her on my lap, my joy and my love for my daughter merge. They're one and the same thing. There is no distinction between the two. And if you want to turn to John, 1 John 4, 7, and 8, it's pretty, you probably have it memorized, pretty famous passage. But in his commentary to this passage, Augustine says this, and it sparked a lot of debate, and I don't think a needless debate over centuries. But he says this, Love and do what you will. He boils it all down to this. He says, love and then do what you please. That's his rule for life. And everybody's like, no, you can't say that. That doesn't work. Well, listen to what he's talking about, the verses he's talking about. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7 and 8. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. And everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. And whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. If we really love God all the way, then all of our desires will sync with our love for God. Everything we desire to do will desire because we know it makes us full of joy because our relationship is still solid with God and we're abiding in Him, and it makes God pleased and happy with us, that all of these things unify. Does that make sense? If we really have love, then the things we want to do are going to be, be the same things that please God. Love and do as you please. It's uh, fascinating. We're reading as a church. Um, actually, let me back up for just one second. Have you ever, ever wondered why God is always right? My kids are in, uh, in that stage where they're, how come you're always right, Dad? And I don't have an answer other than because I am, you know. And like I, uh, but I think we ask that of God sometimes, especially when times are difficult, right? God, I know you're right, but man, it sure doesn't feel like it. How come you're always right? It's not fair. God is always right because he is love. And it's never wrong. Love is never wrong. And in uh, Galatians, the fruit of the Spirit, the end of chapter 5 in Galatians, listen to what it says. It says the fruit of the Spirit, the, the things that make us more like God, right? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Now listen to this phrase, and you might have never seen it before. It says this, against such things there is no law. Love, joy, peace, patience. Against such virtues or things or, or actions as they flow out, against such things there is no law. It is never wrong. Love is never wrong. Joy is never wrong. Patience is never wrong. Faithfulness is never wrong. There's never a time when faithfulness is wrong. There's no law against such things. And when we become like God and we're filled with what really is virtue, our actions are right and good and true. Our desires are right and good and true. God is never wrong because God is love. Okay, We're reading a book as a church, Francis Chan's uh, Crazy Love. 
And there's, in chapter 5, this really cool part where he says, hey, um, do this little experiment. <laughs> he says, go to 1 Corinthians 13 where it talks about love and just substitute your name for the word love. So where it says love is, say Ken is. And then just read it, see how you do, right? So here's how this goes. Ken is patient. Ken is kind. Ken does not envy, and Ken does not boast. Ken is not proud. Ken is not rude. Ken is not self-seeking. Ken is not easily angered. Ken keeps no record of wrongs, and Ken does, does not delight in evil, but rejoices with truth. Ken always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Ken never fails. <laughs> Ken, you know, Ken should not be a pastor. Um, we have a cheap view of love because in America especially, we emphasize the doing rather than the being. And we all do a loving act a day or every other day. We all do. And we see that, and we check the checkbox, and then we move on. And we don't realize that love isn't the presence of a, a loving act. Love is a state of being where hopefully the entirety of who you are is characterized by love. So we, we fulfill our quota in a cheap fashion. We don't understand that the whole idea is an internal one, not an external one. It's us radically being changed to be more like God to be all loving, not just to do some loving things for the people that we like. That was the Pharisees' definition of love. Remember that? Jesus is like, love your neighbor, and they're like, well, I like Joe, I like Bob, Sally's pretty cool, I do some cool things for them, right? That counts. Jesus is like, no. And he gives the parable of the Good Samaritan. He, he tells a story like the Congo video. And he says, what about that person where it's not easy and it's not fun? Love is when you care about that and you actually sacrifice for that as well. That's the way I am, God. I sent my son for you to do for you what you could not do for yourself. That's, that's God kind of love, and that's the kind of love you need to be filled with. And that flows into this last thing. Just so you, you know, um, Augustine was the one that first said that famous phrase, love the sinner, but hate the sin. Because when you, realize, when you realize that you're a sinner too, the doctrine of sin, right? And you look at someone else, man, they're no different than you are. You're not looking down on them where you judge them. You suck. You look at them and you're like, hey, we suck. <laughs> um, it sucks that we do this kind of thing, but you know what? I love you, brother. I love you, sister. Let's grow together. So Augustine says, love the, sin, uh, the sinner, but hate the sin. Now here's the last one. So we're talking about the doctrine of happiness and how that flows into love, and love brings these things together. Now what really drives that? And the word I would put here is authenticity, and it comes from, I think, his view and his life example of understanding depravity. Depravity is, means you really have no basis for pride. Um, total depravity, it, it's funny because Calvin picked up, and in his five points of Calvinism or tulip, the T is, is total depravity. And everyone's like, what? Total depravity? I'm not a Hitler. You know, I mean, and that's not what the total depravity means. It doesn't mean that you're all bad. What it means is that you're not all good. That every one of us has an element of bad in us, no matter how good you think you are. There is none righteous, it says in Scripture. 
Um, there's no one who can stand before God and say, you owe me because I am so good. You can't find fault with me, God. <laughs> and out of this view, there's a, a humility or a richness or an authenticity that comes to uh, Augustine. I love what G.K. Chesterton said along kind of this lines. He was asked to write an essay, so he got a letter. Uh, Chesterton was, was the great journalist of the early 1900s in England, and, and uh, the editor sends him this letter and says, we'd like for you to answer this question. What is wrong with the world? Okay, in this many words and all this for publication. And Chesterton gets out um, a pen, and he writes back and sends the letter to the editor, and the editor kind of opens it up and says, you know, dear Mr. Editor, um, in answer to your question, um, what's wrong with the world? Space, I am. Yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. <laughs> um, Chesterton was just kind of witty that way, but we are. It's not, it's not a problem with structures or politics so much. Um, the Congo is a people problem before it was ever a government problem. The people are what's wrong with this world, right? We love ourselves too much. My daughter, we, we, every night we get our daughters together and we say, hey, what's something you're thankful for? Um, just kind of a little thing we do with the daughters. And we go through our two oldest and then our youngest, and she always copies what the two oldest says. Um, and then she says, and I'm like, no, you have to come up with one on your own. And she goes, I love myself. I really like me. I give myself hugs like this, you know. <laughs> She's like baby talk, three-year-old, you know, and it's like, where did she get that, you know? And she's all excited about, I really like myself, you know, and I thought it was just a funny, that was just last night, you know, and it kind of goes with this. But our hearts are restless, said Augustine, page one of the Confessions, until they find rest in thee, O God. You have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless. We can't fix that restlessness. And so when we stop trying and we say, you know what, God, I cannot do this for myself. You have to do this for me. We get that relationship right and the pride goes out the window. Here's some quotes. Um, actually, before we do that, let me just a couple different things, stories of Augustine's life. I love when he's writing, he talks about his theology. Here he creates all of these great writings and he says, push on if you can to, to the, his reader. He says, push on if you can. Take it further. I'm not the last word. I'm nobody. Push on if you can. When he was uh, on his sickbed, someone came to him and, and wanted him to pray over him because um, for healing, right? And he looked at them and said, if you think I had the gift of, of healing people, don't you think I would have already used it on myself? I just love that. In the 400s, he was saying something so, like, obvious that, like, one of my friends would say it, you know? Um, it's authentic to me. In his confessions, he writes so... PG-13-ish, that it makes you blush. And he talks about his motto in early life was this, when he was a sinner, God grant me chastity and continence, but not yet. And I, I went to both a, a secular college and a Christian college, and when I was at Clemson, that was the motto for people. Ha, 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 ha. Um, grant me this, but not yet. When I went to Biola, I never heard that kind of talk once. Were the people different at Biola, you think? No, they were Christians. And we don't know how to talk about what's really going on inside of us. The struggles, the difficulties, the, the sin, the problems. The, we don't know how to talk about that. We put up this front. And 
other people don't have that problem. The, the sinner just can at least talk about, man, my life's a mess. Augustine, back in the 400s, talks about this so readily to his peers and in this book that it would make you blush. And I think there's something there. There's authenticity. We need to learn how to talk about what's really going on. The um, commitment we have at Antioch, authentic spirituality is a lot along these lines. Christ-centered is our, our first commitment. The second one is authentic spirituality. That it's not external makeup at this church. It's real life mess that we can talk about and know that the only thing that's going to fix that is the presence of the Holy Spirit in our life and the encouragement of our Christian brothers and sisters. That's our commitment at this church. It's an interesting one of those little things. Etymology is the study of the history of words, where they come from. And one of the fun ones that everybody always uses is the word person. And it comes from the Latin persona, which means um, uh, character or mask, like from the, the, the early Greek plays and then on into Latin. So character or mask. Isn't that a funny like, history of the word person? Because we live like that, right? We talk about the mask and we don't get to what's beneath it or what's behind it. Pride makes us artificial and humility makes us real, said Thomas Merton. And here's just some quotes from St. Augustine on humility that I think we can learn from. And he says this, This is the very perfection of a man to find out his own imperfections. Know thyself. Humility is the foundation of all the other virtues. Hence, in the soul in which this virtue does not exist, there cannot be any other virtue except in mere appearance. And we get back to the mask again. If you don't have humility, the ability to know that you're a sinner that's in need of the grace of God, then you cannot have true or real anything because you think it comes from yourself, not from God working in you. Humility is the predecessor to all other virtues. My wife and I call that teachability. I'd rather take one person that's messy, that's teachable, than any other people that are static and pretend or have a, an appearance of being good. In his retractions uh, that he began in 426, another book, uh, he writes this about his confessions. Um, Thirteen books of my confessions, which praise the just and good God in all my evil and good ways, and they stir up towards him the mind and feelings of men. My confessions were supposed to be praise, basically. And as far as I am concerned, they had this effect on me when I wrote them, and they still do this when now I read them. What others think is their own business. I know at least that many of the brethren have enjoyed them and still do. The whole idea of confessing, writing what really happened in my life and is going on in my interior life, my heart, the whole reason for writing that out, God, in praise to you, you already knew it, said Augustine. I'm just telling it back to you. The whole thing there was that it would conjure up praise so that I can be with you and not put a barrier of falsity or pride between you and me. And so authenticity or humility is something that I think we need to learn from Augustine because if we don't, we end up with the externals. And if we end up with externals, we end up with what's called a church culture. And when we have a church culture, we get really good at going to church on Sunday, but we do a horrible job of being missionaries Monday through Saturday because there's nothing really going on inside of us that would come out into our relationships. And it's not surprising to me that statistically the two denominations that have the greatest transfer out rate, where people that are so-called Christians transfer into other religions are Catholics and Baptists. Because 
I think probably more than any other denomination or, or something to that effect, uh, at least, I don't, I, don't, I don't speak for it, but at least the stereotype is that there's a cultural Christianity going on. So it's no surprise that so many people lacking anything going on inside would transfer out looking for a way to meet that need that God implanted in us. And we don't want cultural Christianity. We're not trying to just become a throng of people here that look a certain way. We're trying to become people that have humility, that know there's not 100% good in us, and that we need God to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves, so that we'll be filled with love and truly have happiness and no joy that we can't know otherwise. And we know the hedonistic paradox of pursuing pleasure. The paradox being that when you run at it, it seems elusive and you can never find it. And so Augustine gives us this example of how he lived his life. If you should ask me, said Augustine, what is the first thing in religion? I should reply, the first, second, and third thing therein is humility. Let's pray. Father, uh, we all have this desire pretty deep down in us for something authentic. We want something real. We don't want cheap copies, phony copies. And as hard as it is, we want to be real ourselves. Um, it doesn't come easy, and we don't know how to do that. <laughs> I just pray that you'd be with this church about the long, slow, difficult business of bringing us back to yourself, that our hearts that are restless would only find their rest as we move towards you. It says in Scripture, draw near to you and you will draw near to us. And I just pray that you would give us such a humility that we wouldn't put on airs or be pretentious or hide behind our masks, that, but that in all our messiness we would just accept who we are and then run towards you, that nothing would hinder us, nothing would get in the way, that we would be willing to confess the reality of who we really are, what's going on in our lives. So, Father, um, let our happiness be found in you. Let our love not be things we do, but be something that we are like you. And let us be humble before you, because without you, we are nothing. We pray that in Christ's name.